0: We are going to continue exploring the relationship between gospel and law, between promise and Torah, uh, and there's, there's a reason why this is so important, and I, I just want to begin uh, with this, is that we have to understand what is at stake, uh, because the letter to the Galatians isn't just for a particular point in time. This is a letter that continues to speak uh, into our present situation. And the letter is warning against the ease at at which we can find ourselves drifting from our center, how quickly we can move from the intimacy that God has called us into with himself through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus by the power of his Holy Spirit to the peripherals of the Christian life, spinning our wheels in selective sanctification, following rules rather than following Jesus. And it's a real danger, And I think one of the evidences of us losing sight of the gospel is actually a diminishment uh, of the evangelistic spirit within the church. And this is something that deeply concerns me for myself, and it concerns me for us as a community, and it's very concerning when I look at the landscape of the church uh, in the West currently. Evangelism is alive and well in many places in the world where the church is exploding uh, but there is an increasing skepticism, even hostility toward sharing one's faith uh, in our current culture. Uh, there was a recent report by Barna uh, that was released that showed that 47% of Christian, millennial, uh, Christian millennials believe that it was actually morally wrong to share their faith with another and that's a very troubling statistic, and we may even be shocked by that, but when you ask yourself, am I a person that lives out my faith comfortably in the world in which I live here in Portland? Am I ashamed of the gospel? Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is, power, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. And he wouldn't have said, I'm not ashamed unless there's always the temptation to be ashamed and I believe that when we understand the heart of the gospel, when we come back to the power and the beauty of what God has already accomplished for us in Jesus and is made available to us through the power of the Spirit, it is only then when the, that the evangelistic spirit will once again empower the church to be what the church is supposed to be. And I want to share with you a, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, the great English uh, expositor from London. uh, He said this, uh, and this is a powerful, powerful phrase. He said, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I I just want you to take the weight of that statement (laughs) into your heart. Every Christian is either a missionary or is an imposter. He said, I would sooner bring one sinner to Jesus Christ then unravel all the mysteries of the divine word, for salvation is the one thing we are to live for. And I just would be curious to know, if in this community here, and in, in each person sitting here, do you feel the weight of eternity when you are confronted with the lost each and every day? Because I think what we need to move away from is what we view as the offensiveness of proselytizing. We're called the proselytize, What we are called to do is to introduce people to the living Christ. It's very different. Jesus said, I'm with you. He said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And if he is with us each and every moment, what's the rudest thing you can do to your spouse when you go to a party? Not introduce them to the people that you're talking to. And yet that's exactly what we do with Christ on a daily basis. We live as if he's not present. We, our memories of yesterday are not memories filled with him. And I believe that this book is to point us back to that central issue, that the gospel is about a vital, intimate, living relationship with the living God who says, I love you, and I am not content to exist without you. And when we believe that he loves us, not because of anything we have done, but because of all that he has done for us in Christ... When we believe that in the depths of our being, it then becomes the passion, the desire of the human heart. We will talk about what we love. We will introduce people to someone that we're crazy about. We don't introduce people to strangers, not generally. We don't don't talk with excitement about someone we don't know. And what I want to protect us from as a community is falling into the trappings of religious form and to call us back again and again to the gospel of freedom. This is what this is about. And this is why we have to take seriously the realities that are before us. People are lost, and people are perishing. I don't know where you stand on doctrines of final judgment, and I believe it's become incredibly unpopular in the church to talk about sin and to talk about heaven and hell. And I can say this, the scripture is quite clear that there will be a day when every single person will stand before their maker and they will give an account for their life. And we are told there is a final, a final judgment and there will be a separation. And if you don't believe in eternal hell, you can at least admit to me right now that there are people that are experiencing hell on earth, and I don't believe this is the worst that it gets. And we should take very seriously the eternal destiny of every person. When I think about my father sitting alone in Alaska, my heart breaks for him. And I told the, I've been praying to the Lord, Lord, don't let me become cold and indifferent to his eternal destiny. I want to share one final quote with you before we jump into the text, because this is just something that's weighing on me so heavily. I believe the best strategy for church growth is not church transfer growth. Not going from one church to another. The best strategy is actually reaching the lost where they are with the good news of the gospel, by introducing people to the king who is with us. And I want us to move into this new building where every empty seat represents a lost soul that should be hearing about God's love for them. And this should be a place that truly is a door of hope for the lost, where they can experience the salvation, the forgiveness, the new life that's available to them in Jesus. Listen to what Spurgeon says. This is this is so powerful and just Crushes me every time I read it. If sinners will be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our bodies. And if they will perish, let them perish with our arms about their knees, imploring them to stay. And if hell must be filled, at least let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let not one go there unwarned and unprayed for. We need to have that sense of urgency because there is much at stake. This is why this letter is important. This is why we have to understand the difference between law and gospel. So let's jump into this text. How's that for a somber intro? All right. I wanna just remind you kind of where we've come from in chapter three because Paul is building upon arguments. He's basically hitting the relationship between law and gospel from kind of every angle. Uh, And I want to just kind of take us back through just kind of a a quick, really quick review. Mark, a a couple weeks ago, uh, took us through chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. And and what was Paul arguing uh, at that point in the letter? That if we receive the Spirit of God through faith in Christ at the beginning, not through works of the law, then the only way to go on empowered by the Spirit is by faith, not by works of the law. That is what he began in this chapter declaring, that the churches in Galatia had been bewitched into thinking that we can start the Christian life by faith, but we can complete it by returning to Torah. That our salvation may be from Jesus, but our sanctification is by keeping the law. Paul continues with the example of Abraham, arguing that the only way to be a child of Abraham is through the faith that Abraham had. Abraham Believed in God and it was what? Accounted to him as righteousness. The blessing of Abraham comes not to those who keep the works of the law, but to those who trust in the promises of God. And then last week, uh, looking at verses 10 through 14, Paul says that to live by faith, that is to follow rules uh, rather than to follow Jesus, is to be under the curse of the law and that Jesus came to redeem us from the curse by becoming a curse on our behalf. So that the promise, the blessing, comes to us once again, not by our keeping Torah or returning to Torah. And I'm just I use Torah and Law interchangeably. Uh, we don't find ourselves under blessing because of our ability to keep the law. No, we find ourselves experiencing the blessing through our implicit trust upon christ and his finished work that we might receive the empowerment of the holy spirit and that our obedience and our transformation comes through the spirit's work as we follow jesus not as we try to follow rules that we can't keep we're not trying to perfect in the flesh what god has begun in the spirit this is essentially what paul has said up to this point but now he moves into kind of a complex argument beginning here in verses 15 through 18 Uh, He starts with a a human analogy, a human example of what was common practice around covenants in the time in which he lived. And he says here, he says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Once there is an agreement made, the covenant has been signed, if you will. You You don't change it. You don't ratify it. You don't make a new covenant and make that one go away. And essentially what he's doing is he's comparing, he's saying, listen, just because Moses, the Mosaic covenant, exists doesn't mean it ratifies or annuls the covenant God made with Abraham. And if righteousness can be accomplished through the keeping of the law, that would nullify the covenant with Abraham. No, there's got to be something else going on here. And so what does, he, what does he say? He says, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and two offsprings. I prefer uh, kind of earlier translations, New King James. I don't share what the NIV says. It's the ESV. It actually uses the word seed versus seeds, um, which is what it means in the, in the Greek. And two seeds, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your seed who is Christ. And we're going to come back to that in just a minute. This is what I mean, Paul goes on to say. The law which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God. The, the law, which came 430 years after Abraham, doesn't get rid of the Abrahamic covenant, is what he's saying. For if the inheritance came by the law, it no longer comes by promise. It can't be a gift if it's received by the works of the law but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Remember, we considered this last, last week that people were always saved by their dependence, their trust and covenant faithfulness to Yahweh and that the law was given as the parameters by which they were to live out that covenantal relationship. The sad thing is that they left the relationship and gave themselves fully to the parameters. We do this all the time. So the human example that Paul is declaring here is, is beginning in verse 15. He's anticipating a challenge from the false teachers who would have responded with something like this. Paul, when we tell the Galatian believers who have begun with faith that their sanctification comes through the works of the law, we're only doing what God did. God gave the law to the children of Israel and that they were to keep the law as a sign of their covenant. That's what, we're just telling them to do what God told them. Why would we not do that? And Paul sets up this illustration of how the Mosaic law must not be interpreted as an annulment or an alteration of the terms of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is why he goes on in verse 17. He says, listen, the way God offered blessing to Israel through Abraham and the way God offered blessing to Israel through Moses were not contrary ways. If in the law, God was telling man to earn his way to blessing by works and the covenant of Abraham would no longer be it would no longer be needed it would be annulled it would be void but God's covenant with Abraham showed that divine blessing is freely given only to those who live by faith both covenants demand obedience but it was obedience that flowed from faith we're going to consider why the law was given at all in just a moment. But this is, this is important for us to see his argument. And what he's trying to show is that Abraham, and this has actually created a tremendous amount of controversy through church history. There's a battle between Paul and James. Rome, <laughs> I don't know if you guys knew this, but Martin Luther actually wanted James removed from the Bible because James focused on Abraham's obedience and Paul focused on, on Abraham's faith. And they're not in conflict with one another Abraham was saying that, excuse me, Paul was saying that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. James said, show me a person's faith by what they say and I will show you my faith by what I do. In other words, obe- nobody is arguing that obedience isn't a part of the Christian life. A life of faith is a life of faith that works. And that's why I like to utilize those two statements that faith from even a Jewish mindset is the is a total dependence upon God by which God is empowered uh, to live in and through us by his spirit, but it still requires, and the spirit inspires us to what? To walk in obedience. It's obedience that flows out of faith. There's nothing in in, in this book that says that works are bad. It's saying that Torah can't save, is what it's saying. Works can't save you. Jesus alone saves you. He initiated the salvation. I always say, he did his part, we did our part. We did the sinning, he did the saving. But the outcome of that salvation is covenant faithfulness, empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's empowered by the Spirit, not by, the Torah, not by Torah. And so I, I think this is important even to see in God's words to Isaac in Genesis 26, verses four and five. He says, I will multiply your descendants reaffirming the covenant he made with Abraham as the stars of heaven and by your descendants shall all the nations of the earth bless themselves because Abraham, what? Obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham's faith was a faith that worked. Everything he did flowed from his trust in Yahweh. This is the difference between living by law versus living by abrahamic faith it's not living by faith does not mean there's no obedience It does not mean that you just i believe jesus exists and that's all you don't you don't you don't stand in a, a position of frozenness because if you try to do anything then you're working you're doing works and that's not faith that's not how it works is that as we trust jesus the love of god is poured out in our hearts as the love of god is poured out in our hearts the love compels us to have a faith that works and a love that labors and a hope that is patient. And so the question is, if the inheritance does not come by law but promise, how does Jesus then fit in? And this is where I want you to see that central verse here in 16. He says, "He says, and to the offsprings, he goes now, now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Now, this is a confusing statement, because when we say offspring, singular, we usually mean more than one, don't we? And Paul is doing something really fascinating, and what he is calling our attention to is a doctrine that often creates squirmishness amongst believers, and that's the doctrine of election, Paul is basically declaring something, Genesis 21, verse 12, uh, when Isaac is called the offspring and Ishmael is not. And why is that? Remember, Isaac and Ishmael become this incredible picture of the difference between, between gospel and flesh, living by faith and living by the flesh. Ishmael, God gave a promise to Abraham that through his seed would all nations be blessed. God took too long for Abraham. Him and Sarah got frustrated that it was taking so long to fulfill the promise. And so what did they do? They took the situation into their own hands. They tried to perfect in the flesh what God had begun in the spirit, essentially. We could apply that principle. And Abraham slept with his maidservant, Hagar, And Ishmael was born. What happens is that God blesses Ishmael. He's like, yeah, he's one of your children. Nations will be birthed out of him. But that's not the child of blessing. And in fact, when God calls Abraham to sacrifice his son, which is a very, very intense passage, one that has so many theological implications and points so intensely to uh, the work of the cross even, uh, he says to Abraham, Abraham, take your son, your what? your only son. So there's make, there is a distinction here. Now, what's problematic for us is that often we take the doctrine of election and we turn it into something that I think it is not. And that is that we take the doctrine of election and we take it into God's who's in and who's out. But we need to remember that the promise that God makes to Abraham, God chose Abraham out of all the people and said, I'm going to bless you. Abraham believed him, it was accounted to him as righteousness. He says, now through your seed, I'm going to bless all nations. I chose you that through you I can reach all. And the ultimate fulfillment of that promise is found in the one, the only one who is ever able to fulfill the law, and that was Jesus. Now, Jesus, we can actually say, is the one for the many and the many in the one. And this is why he becomes the representative man uh, for all of humanity. And how is the promise of Abraham fulfilled in Jesus? Well, first of all, we need to always keep our understanding of who Jesus is anchored in Israel's history. He is the promised Jewish Messiah. He is, in the strict physical sense, a Jew, (laughs) which can trace his parentage all the way back to Abraham. He lived the life of faith, which allowed him to be the true son of Abraham. He lived... Everything that Jesus did, he, was, he, he's, he constantly was an example of what it looks like to live in total dependence upon the Father, empowered by the Holy Spirit. I mean, at his baptism, when the Spirit comes upon him, it says the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness. He did whatever the Spirit told him to do. He says, I only speak those things which the Father has given me to speak. He says, my Father has been working and I have been working up to this point. This is faith that works. Jesus is the illustration of Abrahamic faith in all of, its, uh, in all of its fulfillment. His death and resurrection as the Son of God atoned for sin and purchased all the blessings promised to Abraham's descendants only by belonging to him now Can any Jew or Gentile become true children of Abraham and inherit the promise? Galatians 3.29 even says, If you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. For if the inheritance, what does it say here in verse 18, comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Jesus is the promise. That's what I want you to see. John fifteen five he says I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. You know a lot of people have asked me what my view is on eternal security, the idea that once you're saved you're always saved. Jesus says I know my sheep, my sheep hear my voice. No one can take them out of my Father's hand. Uh, and and I yes lean toward the belief that that we have been purchased at a price and that salvation. Uh, that salvation is a gift that comes from Christ not based upon anything that we have done. But here is the thing that I will tell you. I think it's actually a, a, silly, a silly question. Because regardless if we're saved forever once we're saved, uh, I will tell you this, if you're not abiding in Christ, if you're not abiding in him, you will have no sense of that assurance. If you're not abiding in him, you will not feel saved, whether you're saved or not. And this is the key that we need to understand is that Jesus is the chosen one and our election is wrapped up in being found in him. That's what we need to understand. And so it's not by law, it's by promise. And the promise is fulfilled in Jesus, which brings me now to this very, very important uh, section, which is in verses 19 to 20, incredibly cryptic statement, but he says, why then the law? Why was the law given at all then? It was added, notice what Paul says, because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made. Jesus is that offspring and he is the promise. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. I just want you to know that no one fully knows what Paul says. Is trying to say in verse 20. I, I, I read multiple commentaries and they're like, I, I, even, I was looking at a sermon by John Piper and he's like, if anyone knows what that verse means, you feel free to come up and tell me at the end of the sermon. I actually have a, a, a belief that, and I'll just state this really quickly so we can look at what we do understand fully, is I believe what, what Paul is showing is, is, is one thing is clear that the Torah was a temporary measure between Abraham and the fullness of time. I think that that is really important for us to understand. That the Torah is a... Notice what it says. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring, that is Jesus, should come to whom the promise has been made. And so the law came for a time. Now, one of the things that he is showing is is the weakness of that law for bringing, for the law to bring blessing versus the righteousness that comes by faith that we see in the Abrahamic covenant. And I have this feeling that Paul is just showing even the difference in the way the covenant came, that the the covenant that God made with Israel was through a human mediator, but the covenant that he made with Abraham was direct face to face as a friend. And that the same, that the that as a new covenantal people in Jesus, we have something better than a human mediator. We don't have the, and this is exactly what Hebrews tells us, is that Jesus is counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in God's house as a servant, as the intermediary, to testify to the things that were being spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And so I think, believe that what Paul is doing in this very strange verse is showing the supremacy of Jesus as the final word of the Father. This is all God has to say and continues to say to us. Um, but notice what he says here. This, that's just my speculation on that verse. Let's look at what we can see clearly it was added because of transgressions. Now, this is really important for us to understand about Torah because a lot of people are like, what is the purpose of it? What's the purpose of the law? And the law for Paul, at least in Romans, he he's actually spells it out even more clearly what he's getting at, brings an awareness to sin and actually provokes sin. Listen to Romans chapter three, verse 20. It says, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes a knowledge of sin. The law is given as a revelation of God's own boundaries. And those boundaries, are, we seem to be incapable of keeping them. In fact, the more I understand the law of God, the more intensely I see how far short I fall fall from his perfect law because the law is perfect and good jesus said i didn't come to destroy it i came to fulfill it and thank goodness he fulfilled it because he even throws out that incredibly punchy memorable line that drove me to my knees which is therefore be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect what is jesus doing in that point he is revealing to you if you hear those words and you're like okay nobody hears that and says okay they're like i can't that's the point. That's the reality. That's the gospel. It is meant to drive us to a place of total despair. I can't save myself. That is why the gospel hurts so deeply before it comforts so deeply because it reveals to us our total and absolute impotence. We can't save ourselves. One of the great dilemmas that we face in the church today is if you've grown up your entire life as a Christian, you've never really strayed from the Lord, it's easy to miss this point of how horribly short you fall from the glory of God. We don't talk about sin enough, but sin is a rebellion against God's rule, and I promise you from the moment you wake up in the morning till the time you go to bed, you are breaking it every moment of the day it's a deeply despairing thing it's what paul says in romans 7 the things that i want to do i don't do and the things that i, I keep on doing i don't want to do and, and who's going to save me from this body of death it's not that we can't get better but better is not perfect <laughs> And this is why I love the illustration that Charles Price once gave of, he said, sin is like this. He's like, you go to catch the bus, you miss the bus by five minutes, someone else comes up and misses it by an hour. You don't turn to that person and say, I only missed it by five. (laughs) Because you're both waiting for the stinking bus. And that's the reality. It's like when we compare ourselves to Hitler, we feel pretty good. But actually compared to Jesus, we're pretty close to Hitler. And that's a terrifying reality, and that's offensive. It's the very thing that I spent time talking to my dad. When my dad says, I think I'm a good person, I'm like not good enough to stand before a holy God. And what the law came to reveal, but if we don't know the law, we don't know what sin is. And this is why Paul says, hey, listen, If the law had not come, I wouldn't even know what sin is. And this is why he goes on to say in 520, now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin is increased, grace abounded all the more. The law comes to reveal just how sinful sin is. It comes to actually reveal to us that we have a rebellious streak, that our default setting is to continually put other things upon the throne of our heart where only God belongs. And it's good things. And the deepest concern for Paul is it's religious things. It's falling into the trappings of what Jesus warned us again against in Matthew verse chapter 7 when he says, and many will come to me and say, Lord, I cast out demons in your name. I did many signs and wonders in your name. He doesn't deny that they did all this stuff for him. But he says, away from me, I never knew you. And the most horrifying words that you and I could ever hear is... Lord, I did all this stuff for you, and he says, hey, I, I actually never knew you. You're a stranger to me. You, you don't know me. I don't know you. Because the gospel is about knowing Jesus. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the living God, and Jesus Christ His Son, whom he has sent. It's not about keeping your own set of rules to make yourself feel better about your existence. In fact, that won't lead us to anything but despair, Paul says. And so we have this reality that when the law comes, the more we understand the law, the law is given to reveal how desperately we need to trust God for our salvation. Even the law given to Israel was to create parameters. It was meant to be a disciplinarian, to give them the parameters by which they could live in covenantal trust upon Yahweh. But they gave up God and they clung to his law. And what they found was continual rebellion. Israel failed in its call to be a nation of priests. said, you will be a nation of priests. I will make myself known to the world through you as a nation of priests. They became a nation with priests closed off to the world because they lost God and gave themselves to the parameters. And this is the danger that we are faced with even today. I, I think that it's fascinating when I look at my own, uh, my own temptation constantly to the moment I, I think the law does reveal sin. I mean, the moment I see 45 miles an hour, I want to drive 55. It's a weird thing. And maybe some of you, I know we're all different. There's some of you that are like serious rule keepers. Uh, but even the, even the best rule keepers They pride themselves in keeping the rules and the people that break the rules pride themselves in breaking the rules, but both extremes can miss the point of the rules altogether. And this is why we move to this this last uh, section that we're going to be looking at today, that the law is a revealer, but the promise is a gift. Galatians 3, 21-22, it says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Yeah, the righteousness doesn't come to us by being able to keep the law. And he doesn't even challenge the idea that the law could be kept. He's just saying that even if it could be kept perfectly, that's not how you're gonna find righteousness. Righteousness comes by faith. But the scripture imprisoned, notice what he said. Now he's saying, you can't actually do it because the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Is the law contrary to the promises of God? The law does not contradict God's covenant with Abraham. It just simply was not a part of God's plan to bring the blessing. It had no power to give life. That's why I always like to say the law is a plumb line from heaven. All it can do is reveal the crookedness of the wall. That's it. The law just can, it gives you the, it gives you the, the reality it tells you the problem, but it doesn't actually give you the solution. It's like an x-ray that, that shows that the, there's something horribly broken inside you, but it's not the actual cure. And this is what the law gives the, re, the re, revelation that we need salvation. That's what the law does. And this, notice how he says this, the scripture actually imprisons everything under sin. That's a really heavy statement, but what is it meant by that? Well, here's the thing, Paul says, if I had not known what the law is, I wouldn't have known what sin is. What scripture is he talking about? They didn't have the New Testament at this point. The only scripture that Paul is speaking of is the, is the Old Testament, the law and the prophets. And what the law and the prophets declare is that the human heart is wicked and deceitful above all things and not to be trusted. And this is what I want us to understand today. We will never have an evangelistic spirit and desire to reach the lost if we don't see how fundamentally sinful we are and how desperately we need God's grace. We won't be carriers of that grace until we are humbled by the fact that God has saved us. Isn't that the beauty of the song, the most well-known song in all of human history, Amazing Grace? that saved a wretch like me, we don't like to think of, we're not told in our culture, in our society, that we're wretches any longer. What we're told is that we're awesome. I I just saw a stupid book in the Powell's. It was like, you can kick A, you just don't know it, or something dumb like that. I'm like, okay, okay, sweet. That's why depression, anxiety, and suicide is an all-time high because we're kicking so much butt with our self-love. Even within the church, self-love has become a new gospel. And I'm telling you that it is the way of renunciation that you even begin to discover the self. And it's not until the love of God is poured out in our hearts and we're given a new heart, a heart of flesh, says Ezekiel, that we begin to live differently. The law is a revealer. And here's the thing is that it says here, everything has been pr- imprisoned uh, under sin in scripture. But the reason I think that we've lost our way in, in the call to be missionaries, to be carriers of God's love and good news to the world, to introduce people to King Jesus is because we don't know Jesus because we're not spending time with him in the scriptures. And because we're not spending time with him in the scriptures, we don't even know that we're stuck in sin. Because the scriptures is the revelation that tells us how things are. You know what's fascinating? I listen to NPR all the time. And every once in a while, they'll have like some new discovery that they'll declare, like some new, some, new, some new discovery in the field of psychology. And it'll be something like, yeah, they've done a bunch of new research and they're discovering that it's not good that people are alone. Like, oh, fascinating. I mean, I'm using that as a... I'm pretty sure that was like to the extent of like this new... It was like... Yeah, people have a, people, or this is one that I just heard a week ago about the trolls online. And, and, you know, obviously we're talking about the, our president's Twitter habits. And, and then it was like about how people, we all are trolls. Like when it comes to sitting in front of a computer or on our phone, because we're detached from the people that we're attacking. But that, and they found that when someone attacks someone, it actually just perpetuates attacks it's weird when you're bad to people it makes people do bad things and then it said and what we found in our current research is that when you're kind people respond with kindness i'm just like let's just read the bible i'm telling you i'm positive that these things have already been stated for thousands of years that God has created us for a relationship with himself and that when we understand the scripture, that's what makes us uncomfortable when we read the word of God. It's not that it's dry, it's just convicting if we really let the spirit do its deadly work. Because when I read the law, I'm convicted, but when I read Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, I'm even more deeply convicted. Because he says it's not just what you do externally, it's actually what goes on in your heart, what you think. And you're like, Lord, I'm in trouble. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? Be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Lord, I can't exactly trust me. Give yourself to me. I have lived the life that you could not live. I died the death that qualifies you to live the life that I lived. Because death could not keep me, I rose from the dead. Because he is not just man, he is the God-man. He is God in human flesh. And he entered into your sin to deliver you from death, to give you new life, jesus loves you so much and until you know him and know his love you will not be a carrier of that love to the world around you understand the gospel for this is the gospel for god has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh Jesus has taken care of the sin. Put your faith in him. Find forgiveness, find newness of life, and find the courage to live out his life as a missionary to his world. May we be a part of that redemptive story, amen?